Welcome. Welcome. To Crime and Time. On the rocks. On the frost. On the frost. So we are doing the frosé, or our take on the frosé. Um, we're using a Morvedra rosé from a local winery in our town, Nasser. I'll just tell because it's a cool winery. Um, this is the Ridge Rosé. This is the Ridge Rosé, which um, 20% of the proceeds from the sale of this wine go to campfire charities. So win, that's win. pretty cool. Win-win. You and get it's, to drink wine and it goes to a good place. It goes to a good place. And it's kind of one of my favorite wines. Like, I do yeah. like, I have had this wine before, but I've not had it, it frosé style. Wine. I've not had it frosé style on purpose. Um, I wanted some immediately once, <laughs> so I put it in the freezer and it poured out in that little clump, 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 clump mm-hmm. thing. And that's what I was going for this time. So I put the bottle in the refrigerator or in the freezer yesterday midday. And our freezer could hold uh, <laughs> coronavirus vaccines. <laughs> it apparently works a little too well because not only was it a solid block of ice, but the cork was pushed out. It was a chunk. See, I had thought you had opened it. No. I didn't know that it pushed the cork out. It pushed the cork out. So we put it in a water bath for a while and let it frost or defrost some. And then we used my snow cone machine that I bought for my daughter's birthday party. Not so that the children could have snow cones, but so the adults could have margaritas. It is. I actually have my own (laughs) snow cone machine at home with sans children. And I've used it many a time for like nice frosty, uh, cool drinks. Yes. It gives a more coarse blend than the blender, but it's faster and more efficient. You get more ice. And it looks like snow. It's it's snow. It's a it's snow. It's totally snow. All right, I'm so, trying it. Yeah. So we did that, and we poured our defrosted frosé over it. I think it's going to be pretty Ooh, alcohol heavy. Cold. Because what poured out was the alcohol, and the ice stayed in the bottle. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's alcohol heavy, but it's good. It's. I love this wine. Yeah. It's my favorite wine. I typically drink it over ice with club soda anyway. So this we're using these. Um, stemmed Mexican hand-blown glasses with the blue rim. These are some of the ones that I brought home on my lap. We've never used this glass before. We haven't. We've used the cocktail glasses. Yes. That I bought at the same time. I love these wine glasses. They're my very favorite. I was giving a baby shower or a bridal shower once. And um, the bride mentioned, do you really want to use these glasses? These are so nice because I had just gotten them and brought them home. And I said, no, it's fine. None of them have broken so far. She literally put it down on the table and the stem bopped off. But I still have five. Well, I'm going to Mexico or next seven. week. If you need one more, I'll buy you one. Please do. Thank you. <laughs> this is yummy. Yeah, really good. I don't know if we have time for stories now because we're just going to have to drink these. We're just going to sit and drink our drink because we have to drink it fast because it's frozen. It'll thaw. All right. Do you want to go first or you want me to? Mine is long. Um, it's up to you. Okay, I'll go. So I got mine from um, two little, well, mostly from one little um, YouTube video. Um, I did get some from The Long Winter. I have no idea what you're doing still. Okay. So um, when the children were little, I would read to them at night. And we read, we got halfway through, and I really want to finish it. I think I might just force them to let War me read peace. to them at night. Yes, War and Peace. <laughs> I read to them War and Peace. No, um, the Little House in the Prairie series, because I've never read the whole thing. Oh, okay, yeah. So one of the books in that is The Long Winter. And Laura Ingalls Wilder lived through 
on the plains, the harshest winter on record. The oh, winter wow. of 1880-1881. So my sources are The Long Winter, Laura Ingalls Wilder, um, the Yankton Daily Press to Coton, The Long Winter, 1880-1881, the National Isla Archives Prologue Magazine, um, Dismit Dakota Territory, and the most of my sources are, it was a YouTube video by MN Bricks, minnesotabricks.com, um, 1880 to 1881, winter in New Ulm, Minnesota. Aww. So I'm going to talk mostly about New Ulm, Minnesota. This video is so cute. It's literally a man talking about the winter and pu putting up pictures of the newspaper articles. Well, what I did is I would pause the video and I would read the newspaper article. Oh, how smart is that? It was really cool. So I'm just going to start. So, but even after Laura was warm, she lay awake, listening to the wind's wild tune and thinking of each little house in town, alone in the whirling snow, with not even a light from the next house shining through. And the little town was alone on the wide prairie. Town and prairie were lost in the wild storm, which was neither earth nor sky, nothing but fierce winds and blank whiteness. Oh. Yeah, and that's what it was. Like, I mean, I did live in... Scary. I lived in Buffalo, New York for three winters, so I'm pretty familiar with snow. There are stories in this story that will that are tragic. Yeah, I bet, because they didn't have like, modern conveniences. Steps out your door, and you're dead. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, Little House and Prairie book series have been part of young people's childhood for a couple of generations. Um, <laughs> there was even a TV show from the 70s, mm -hmm. which I loved. Um... And I would watch it faithfully every day after school and the book series, which I've not read all of them. I've read half of them. Um, and it's basically, it's classified as historical fiction, but there have been enough, um, there has been enough proof to prove that the majority of her recollections were 100% accurate and true. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh -huh. um, so the Ingalls lived in the South Dakota Territory and the family consisted of Charles, his wife, Carolyn, his daughters, Mary, Laura, and Carrie, and Grace, and then um, at the time of this winter, they had George and Maggie Masters and their infant son staying with them. And all in that one room. All in that one room cabin. But the winter was such that if you got stuck somewhere, you weren't going home until it was done. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. This is where we're at. So here's another quote. It says, there was no meat to be had, no butter, no potato. The potatoes were nearly gone. The only fruit that there had been in town was dried fruit, and that was long gone from the stores. We had a little yet, we had little yet and a little bit of sugar. Coffee was gone and tea. Um, this was from Wilder and Pioneer Girl. Wilder was um, Laura Ingalls's future sister-in-law. So okay. she married a man from the same territory and his family obviously was going through the same thing at the same time. So she wrote a book called Pioneer Girl um, in the late 1920s. And she wasn't able to ever find a public publisher for her manuscript, but she, yeah. So anyway, um, the Ingalls, one of the things that they did was they took hay and they would twist it and braid it into sticks so that it would burn longer because their wood was gone. Oh, no. And if you didn't stay warm, you were going to die. The flour was gone. Um, they used ground seed, and they would put it in the coffee mill, and they would grind it to make flour, because flour was all gone. 
They had no choice. They had no choice. So what they were supposed to plant that spring, they used to survive. Um, and apparently you like grinding this in the coffee grinder, you would grind all day to make enough for like a loaf of bread. Oh, gosh. So that's what you did. You ground flour. And the accounts were very similar to the New Ulm paper. So the New Ulm paper is what I'm going to talk about most. Um, Almanzo and his sister, which is the future husband, they have also accounts of their bravery in this winter. Um, Almanzo Wilder and his friend, friend Cap Garland volunteered to travel 12 miles to Desmet to purchase wheat for their family from a farmer who had saved some from the year before. Um, it was a dangerous trip, but if the people in his town were going to live till spring, he had to make it. So they did, and they made it, luckily. Um, and they would, the horses would break through the hard crust of the snow to the pit of the soft snow, and they would have to shovel out the snow in front of the horses so that they could walk. And the sled would be drawn, so they would shovel out the snow in front of the horses, the horses would walk, and then you could pull the sled through because it wasn't it wouldn't go it just got stopped by the hard snow so they were walking basically they were walking 12 miles with this wagon full of crap full of not crap full of flour yeah (laughs) life-saving life-saving flowers and they just got home with their 60 bushels of wheat before another blizzard hit like literally walked in the door blizzard oh gosh yeah um, Ellen Wilder, Amonzo's sister, moved to Dakota Territory in 1879 to teach. She filed her paperwork in August to Homestead right before the winter. And she luckily was able to get home before the trains stopped running. Otherwise, she would have been out on her homestead With nothing. by herself. Yeah, so she was able to get home before the train stopped. She wrote, um, the blizzard winds are, had blown the earth from the fields where the sod was broken and mixed it with the snow and packed it so tightly that the railroad cuts and snow plows could not move it. Oh, gosh. The icy snow could not melt because the earth had mixed with it and the men with picks were digging it inch by inch and the slow work because many of the cuts they must dig down 20 feet to get to the rails. That's unreal. Unreal. She wrote a letter that was included in Laura Ingalls Wilder's book. In October, a blizzard came for three days that we could not see an object 10 foot in front of us. The railroads were blocked for 10 days. Snow in the cuts being packed like ice. After the storm, I went to town for flour and coal. Our merchants had none. A carload of flour had been there a few in, in a few hours was, blo- was blackened um, when blockaded. My mother took me home for the winter, but I left everything except my wardrobe in Dakota, not expecting to be gone more than two or three months. But storm after storm, and in the middle of December 1st, there were no trains that reached a smoot until May. Wow. Yeah. A lot of families were frozen to death, and um, others lived on turnips that they would grind up in their coffee grinder. Thank goodness for turnips, turnips I guess. Yes. But the trains, the trains couldn't get through with the supplies. Yeah, like, no... Basically, even now, I would say no family here in America, basically, unless you're a prepper, is equipped to handle that kind of thing. Nope. And it's bad enough here. Like, one thing that we have run into with the whole COVID thing, I went to a restaurant and they were out of Coors once because Coors had not been able to to make anything. But we have a lot of people in our area, speaking of the campfire, who are still in the process of rebuilding their homes because there's only so many contractors and they can only get to you so fast. So I was sitting at gym and one of the other moms was there and she mentioned that she was, um, they were getting ready to go buy their appliances. And I said, you need to go buy your dishwasher now because husband is a plumber and dishwashers are out six months. 
Yeah. Because they just, they just plant shut down and they didn't make them. Well, Chris, on Christmas Day, we discovered that we had a roof leak. Oh. So, so far, we haven't been able to even contact Mm-mm. a roofer. These are also busy. Yes. But luckily, it's not supposed to rain for another several days. Uh, yeah, a few days. <laughs> like Saturday, this next Saturday. Right. But we need the rain desperately. Not that I want your roof to leak. I don't want my roof to leak, yes. and I don't want it to cave in. So. <laughs> no, that would be really bad. So anyway, New Ulm, which is mostly what I'm going to talk about, was a small little town located in Minnesota. It had at the time 2,500 people, and it was located on the banks of the Minnesota River. It was part of the supply line. The main town was slightly elevated away from the river because of flooding, and Main Street was where the railroad came through. Um, The railroad came through in 1872, and it was the Winona and St. Peter Railroad. So on October 6th, the New Elm Review said, seemed like a regular fall that carried stories from goose hunters complaining about it being really cold and that they'd started out at 2.30. And there was also a piece about a gymnastics event. Oh, interesting. Yes, that was given by Carl Gebster and his pupils and several members of their team. Oh, I thought this was cute because several members of the team travel to Tennessee for Flip Fest every year. And Flip so this Fest. Flip Fest. Um, and, but the paper mentions the Anton Schaefer was loudly applauded for his improvements because he had spent the summer in Frankfurt at Turnfest. Oh, so he could flip and turn. So he could flip and turn. But so the paper mentioned that the girls team had made substantial improvements since their last exhibition. And then there was a dance that went on until 2 a.m. Oh, wow. That's going to be a running theme. Um, In the October 13th edition, they talked about the Itzes which had been the typical, had been lost to the typical maladies of the day, like scarlet fever, diphtheria, and tuberculosis, which they called consumption, um, citing that several cases had killed some of the children in the area. So the diseases and the um, ailments were a little bit worse that year, early. And I don't know if that probably has something to do with the weather patterns. Well, because if it was if there's a, moisture in the air or something. Well, yeah. And if it was a little bit colder than typical. Uh-huh. Then, Your lung issues are going to be problematic. Yes. And you would tend to congregate inside more mm-hmm. sooner. Because I know October, early October is pretty early to start experiencing winter weather, even in that area. Yes, for sure. Which it kind of did this year, too. Uh-oh. And, <laughs> well, we're... we're they they were they were under snow by this time. <laughs> um, in October was prime harvest time, and there was plenty of talk in the papers about the farmers bringing in the wheat to the mill. Um, the first blizzard showed up on October fifteenth. That's so early, and lasted until the seventeenth. Wow. Yeah. The paper carried a review on the 20th saying that the storm had started as a cold rain that had later changed to snow and a strong wind. They reported at the end of the storm that the ponds had frozen enough for the boys to skate. Wow. By October 17th, little boys were skating on the lake. And I'm going back to my years living in Buffalo, New York during the winter. Um, And it was rare that we would get even much snow before like November 1st or like Halloween. Yeah. So this particular storm was bad in many ways, but also because a lot of the potato or the farmers still had crops in the ground. Potatoes were still in the ground and they were frozen, which makes them worthless. Our kiwis, if they stay on the vine at the first frost, if they are still on the vine at the first frost, they are worthless. It freezes the cells inside the kiwi and they just turn into mush. Yeah. Like that's what happens to potatoes. I happen Mm -hmm. to... um 
when our refrigerator was acting up pre-COVID. Was it? No, that's not what it was. Right at the beginning. Yeah. Well, anyway, they li- basically liquefy. Ew, gross. So gross. Gross, 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 gross. Um, the railroad around the area had 10 to 12 foot snow drifts and many places along the tracks. And the Duluth storm in October caused $10,000 worth of damage to railroad property because the Great Lakes had such huge waves that it ran over the shore and caused damage to the property. Oh, crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, the October 27th edition of the paper was filled with political material and announcements that, about a discussion at the local Turner Hall, Turner Hall, which was a debate that would be conducted completely in German. Okay. I mean, it's Minnesota. <laughs> it's so Minnesota. I just thought that was funny. Um, the town of Marshall was hit very hard by that storm. They had a 15-foot snowdrift along Main Street, and it had taken days to get through the blockade to get to Marshall. Um, an immigrant family, that's is October still. There was an immigrant fam- family that was found frozen to death six miles from Springfield. Oh, wow. Because you can still travel in October. Let's go to Springfield. Okay. You should be able to go to town in you October. You should be able to go to town in October. Um, the cold subsided for a little while. And the snow started to melt off. Many people had lost a lot of cattle because of the cold um, already. In Brown County, several farmers lost up to 40 head of cattle and 30 to 60 sheep. And there were even some horses that passed because of the cold in October. That's crazy. Um, Politics was still the main thing in the paper, discussed by November 3rd, so we're getting a little further on into winter now. The Republicans swept the main ticket. Garfield and Arthur were the president winners. I was going to say, was this a presidential year? It was a presidential year. obviously it was. Um, The newspaper spoke about the Catholic Church's celebration of All Saints Day and the small boost that the celebration had given the economy because people weren't shopping. It was cold. You didn't go outside. So... There was kind of a sense of foreboding. People were starting to talk about um, a wood thief in town. Uh-oh. That was stealing wood, which is a big deal when it's cold because that is their main source of heat. Um, they were they were reporting that their wood stores were being raided at night. Um, Mr. Dow was one of those people that had wood stolen, and he reported, the paper reported, Mr. Dow is on the warpath and promises to make it hot for those wood thieves in case they should happen to revisit his premises. <laughs> I bet he would too. <laughs> yes, I just love the little quotes. He in the strikes paper. me as the kind of guy that would be sitting up all night with his shotgun ready, waiting for the wood thief. Yeah, um, in the nearby area of Medella, the storm caused a storm scared her to cattle that ran into the lake and drowned. Aww. I know, so sad. Um, on Thursday, November fourth, was the start of the second storm. Um, this storm was reported on the 10th to be a light snow, but heavy in wind. The same story noted that there was a waterfowl population had already started to head south. So they're noticing the animals are leaving. Uh, that's not good. Omen. Yeah. Um, the paper also noted that the apples were being imported from Michigan and were being, were being sold and were very popular. Well, come get your apples. Apples are great. Yes. Um, Another storm hit the week later on the 17th, and the paper noted that it was a very bad storm. Not as bad as the initial initial October blizzard, but still very bad. Um, Farmers had brought in wood to New Ulm to sell, lots of wood, and people were already starting to run out, and the price of wood skyrocketed. Yes, already privateers coming in. Hey, I know you need wood. Here's some at twice the price. However, they had time to have another gymnastics exhibition, concert, and dance on November 11th at Turner Hall to celebrate Turnaven 
the New Ulm Turner Society's 20th, 24th anniversary, and a pair of nine-year-old boys played the violin to rave reviews. I bet that was cute. So. Yes. So, <laughs> so people are still getting out. Um, in other areas of Minnesota, we're not as faring as well as New Ulm already. People of Bird Island had already run out of wood and the and rained the wood supply of the local the railroad couldn't get through. Um, on November 24th, the paper announced a series of dances that would be held as winter entertainment. But would it really, though? They like their dances in New Ulm. <laughs> I will talk about dances a lot in New Ulm. Um, by December 1st, the temperature started to drop well below zero. Farmers in the nearby countryside were bringing produce into town to sell still. But, so it's, we still have food. By Thanksgiving, um, the band at the Union Hall had 70... They had a band at Union Hall and 70 couples came. Um, one of the frozen ponds had already been made into a skating rink. And people were still getting out to skate. How The railroad finally got through to Bird Island and was able to get them wood. And there was a mad rush for people to get the wood. And people were injured in the process of trying to go so get there, wood. There was a Black Friday trampling. There was a Black Friday trampling in Bird Island to get the wood. Um, corn stood in the fields of New Ulm and it couldn't be harvested because of the snow. So more food that went wasted. Reports of fields going unharvested started to surface. Um, there was a report in the paper about snow plows and no one should worry because we have a big machine that's going to make quick win work of this winter snow. Except. So, except they didn't because it was worse than they thought. Um, another storm came on December 4th and the paper reported this one as beautiful, but it was so cold that no one wanted to go outside to enjoy it. Um, in Watertown, Indiana, which is now the... In Watertown, the snow, what is now South Dakota, the people went and tore apart a railroad trellis to get wood. I don't blame them. Because they were that cold. Another nearby area, Beaver Falls, the railroad service had started to become irregular. There was a warm spell on December 15th, and several farmers made it to town to stock up on supplies. The ice harvesters used the warm spell to cut ice out of the river. Although, why you would need ice, I don't know. But, I mean, what else would they do? That's what they're yes. for. And they would store it till the summer. Yeah. The stores managed to stock up on Christmas supplies, and they listed things like Christmas trees and oysters. Like, oysters were specifically listed. I don't know if oysters is a particularly Christmas thing, but well, apparently they were. I don't know this for a fact, but... My mother-in-law um, would always make this oyster casserole. And, and are they from the Midwest? Well, I don't really know where her family is from, but she would always... Well, actually, I think it was my father-in-law's family that made that, and she just learned how to make it. Uh -huh. But, yeah, she made this oyster casserole, and I don't know if it's a traditional thing or if it's just something his family made that he liked. Uh-huh. But... It I Oysters mean, were specifically listed. I've never tried it. So They had canned and fresh. Um, so the weather is starting to cause problems, obviously. In nearby Tracy, about 300 people decided to go back east. So they boarded a train. They're like, done with this. We're going home. So they get on a train in Tracy. But when it gets to New Ulm, a stretch of weather damaged the track and they weren't able to go. So a lot of the cars jumped the track and overturned. Um, the engineer was the only person that was hurt, but the train, but the people were stuck. 
So this particular train carried a party of Sioux chiefs from the Cheyenne River Agency that were headed to Washington to negotiate a treaty allowing the Northwestern Railroad Company to cross their reservation. When you said Sioux chiefs, for some reason I thought you were mispronouncing Sioux chefs. (laughs) And that they were, like, going to cook up a feast? Yes. The sous chefs were <laughs> And then as I listened no to... No head chef. <laughs> it was just a group of sous chefs. <laughs> I really honestly thought that. And then I'm like, that doesn't add up. <laughs> this is the West of the 1880s. So, um, they Sioux were... chiefs. Sioux chiefs, yes. Um, big shots in the Native American community. <laughs> of the Sioux. Of the Sioux. So they're going to negotiate this treaty to allow the railroad to cross their land. Um, Little No Heart and Rattling Rib, Blue Coat, White Swan, and Forebear were accompanied with their interpreter, William Fielder. Um, The men were taken into town to await repairs on the tracks, and Blue Coat happened to be wearing his full ceremonial dress, complete with 19 scalps. Ah. Yes. That's not intimidating. Not at all. Um, A quote from the paper says, We were informed that Four Bears has always been a friend of the Whites. During the massacre of 1862, he rescued seven prisoners from the clutches of his bloodthirsty brethren. Um, Another of the men that had also been present at Custer's last stand. Oh, okay. So these are big shots. Um, One of the chiefs, Quoted was quoted in the paper as expressing how unimpressed and disgusted he was with the white man's new mode of travel. He's they, like, this sucks. Yes. So obviously that doesn't bode well for the treaty because, you know, if he doesn't like the railroad, he's not going to want it to go across his land. Nah, bro. Um, the railroad plows were working to get this uncovered along the Redstone line. A worker was walking the tracks at the Redstone Bridge to look for damage when a... Snowplow came through and swept him off the tracks, and he fell 20 feet and landed in a huge snowdrift. But unfortunately, no one saw him fall, so he laid there all night long until Monday when some workers found him. Frozen to death? He was not frozen to death. Frozen alive? (laughs) Frozen alive, but he was very lucky to have not frozen to death. It did not say if he lost any limbs. I would imagine he probably I would imagine at least a toe or two. Yes, because it it talks about losing limbs later. Um, The travelers traveling has obviously started to get more dangerous. Mrs. Nicholas Lowe and her 21-year-old son were drinking... (laughs) Well, it's just, um, he's 21, so yes, it's okay. it's okay. Um, they were going home from drinking from Sleepy Eye and got lost in the prairie south of Iberia, and they wandered around all night. The very next day, they saw they were near a slough and saw William Miner's home, and they headed to the house and were welcomed inside. So they got to the house by 2 p.m. Um, they She nearly warm, um, warmed up, so she was good. She laid down to take a nap and died. <gasps> Oh, no. Um, the son lost both legs and a hand. Ouch. No, both hands. Lost both legs and ha- both hands. Um, in another county, a father and son had left to go check on a neighbor, and they got lost and started to wonder. The father buried the boy in a snowdrift, so he built him a little shelter out of snow, and his body heat would keep him warm. Yeah, in like this an little igloo style. Igloo style, yeah. The man finally reached shelter, when the man finally reached shelter, he was over eight miles away from his son or from his home. And they just like walked out of their door and got lost. Oh and he wandered gosh. for eight miles. Uh, meanwhile, the son left in the snow shelter was he got out and he found his way home. But he died 50 steps 
from his front door and no one found him for two days. Oh my gosh. This is like white out. It's you look outside and it's white. I feel like I can remember an episode on Little House on the Prairie where it was like complete white out mm-hmm. conditions. Well, in the book, Charles does that. He gets, he's went out for some reason and he barricaded himself in snow and stayed there all night, but he was able to find his way home. Shortage of wood is really a problem now. It's December 22nd, and there's ads for coal stoves so that people can switch to coal stoves, but can't really get them to you because the trains aren't going. Also, you need coal. You need coal, yes. So a lot of people, the another blizzard stuck on December 26th, and the storm shut down the railroad service again until the tracks could be cleared. It took three engines and a team of men an entire day to clear the tracks between Sleepy Eye and New Ulm. Mr. J.C. Ziski, who had come to watch, got thrown over a fence (laughs) on the side and was buried in a snowdrift when the engine and the plow pushed him off. But luckily someone saw him and saw him fall and were able to pull him out. So he didn't sit there all night like the other guy did. New Ulm had their Christmas ball, and they received presents for the children, like they always do. The paper noted that 124 school children and their teacher, Mrs. Propping and Mrs. Nix, gave a literary exhibition. Um, Grain and flour were still in New Ulm that needed to be shipped out for sale, but railroads can't go, so it's just sitting there. Um, Besides the snow on the tracks, the damage was caused by the cold to the train themselves. If the train did not continuously run the water in the, because it's a steam engine, the water in the boiler would freeze and would crack the engine. So they had to have wood or supplies to keep it it going. So people were taking apart furniture to keep the train going so that it wouldn't die before they got the tracks cleared and it could go through. Well, that's suspicious (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy um papers were starting to report that grocery stores and farmers were starting to lie and cheat well at this point look i have a whole wagon of, of grain which is maybe just the top but um january 5th the paper reported that the last two storms completely ended railroad operations between winona and st peter so there's no trains. There's no Winona St. Peter Railroad. There's no Winona St. Peter Railroad. It's done. I mean, it will come back, but there's nothing right now. Um, Dr. Barry reported that the cold temperatures were causing problems in his office. Much like our wine, his medicine was freezing and popping, popping the, corks the corks out of his <laughs> bottles. Yes. Um, he said there was one where there was a cork perched above the bottle with a column of frozen medicine. That's practically what you brought in from the freezer. (laughs) Yes, it is practically what I brought in from the freezer. So um, despite all this, the people in New Ulm attended the New Year's ball. And the ball continued into wee hours of the morning with, quote, a few dancers made the morning air resound with their unearthly howls. Wow. So they were drunk. They were drunk. Um, So the booze is still getting through or they're making it. One train was restored so mail service could get through, but there was so much mail backed up that it took the postmaster and two assistants three hours to deliver the mail. Now, there's 2,400 people in town. That's less than this town. Well, I don't know. I mean, my mail doesn't come until like 5 o'clock every day. Which is crazy. Mine's here by 11. there's only like 7,000 people in my town, and they drive cars. (laughs) On non-snow roads. Yes. Mine's here by 11. It's awesome. 
I'm like sitting there waiting. For, like sometimes I get home from work and go check and the mail hasn't shown up yet. That's crazy. That I practically crazy. get it on the next day because I don't go look. That's crazy. Um, fuel is still a problem on January 12th, husband's birthday. Um, they reported that farmers from South Brown County had started to burn hay to stay warm. Yeah, you'd have to. You'd have to, yeah. Well, like Laura Ingalls Wilder did. Um, another blizzard came on the 12th or 13th. The January 19th edition reported that the latest storm were, had had whirling no, northwestern winds, and it was followed rapidly by dropping temperatures 20 to 24 degrees below zero. Ouchie. Ouchie. They showed pictures of dogs snow dogs or rings around the sun where the light was reflecting off ice particles it was cool looking i would like to see it but not be in 20 below zero exactly i actually have been in 20 below zero when i lived in buffalo during a really really cold snap Uh uh-huh but only for you know like a second i didn't have to like i had a heater yeah or walk or ride in a way and i had four yeah yeah um a small Schoolhouse near Clear Lake, which they're still freaking having school, reported having wood piles stolen. Despite all this cold and the trains not coming through and all of this stuff, they still had another dance on January 29th at the Masonic Ball. They had the Masonic Ball at Turner Hall. And once again, there was dancing until wee hours in the morning. The evening included dinner and tickets were just $2. But railroads were having a harder and harder time getting through. They were running out of fuel. Um, the tracks would get were the trains would get stuck on the tracks because of the cold and the people would go and try and shovel them out so that the train could get through like everybody's just going and pitching in if the train is stuck you go and you pitch in to try and get it through because there were so few coming through that you needed every single one yeah um mr ole norton who was 32 lived in marshall and he started to get his brothers who lived just a half mile away so he gets snow blind, which is all white. He doesn't see anything but white. And he wandered for some time. He eventually found a haystack and he figured he was just a couple miles from his house. He put himself in the haystack for the night. When he woke up in the morning, he could see that the haystack was just 24 yards from his own house. Oh my gosh. So he thought he'd gone so far and he was just 24 yards from he his house. He was just wandering. Like, there's my house right there. I can see it. Um, he... However, he got to his brother's house and the doctor doctor had to be called and he had to have both of his legs amputated due to frostbite. Um, Michael Downing was another young man. He was only 15 and he was caught outside. He had to have both legs amputated and one arm up to the elbow and two fingers from the other hand at the wrist joint. So his fingers are amputated down here at the wrist. Oh, wow. Which would be crazy looking. Like most of your hand. Most of your hand, yes. Another storm arrived on February 4th and lasted until the 6th. The paper reported this being the worst one yet. The entire town was buried um, with snow drifts in Main Street up to 10 feet deep. Stores are beginning to run short of food again. Staples like oil and coffee and sugar. So the stuff that they have supplies upon supplies upon of. Um, The New Elm Band was headed for a performance in Sleepy Eye. Did they make it? No. Oh. They got stuck, but they found a little house to stay in, but they had to burn the wooden instruments like the violins. I was going to say, did things. they have to burn their oboes? Yes, they <laughs> did. They burned all their instruments to stay warm. Um, school finally closed. We're such wusses now. We're like, <laughs> it's a little cloudy out. Let's close school. Yes. 
Ew, it's like cold. Let's close, sco- close oh. school. It's raining again. I remember I was up in um, Paradise teaching one time and it snowed. In Paradise, which is not rare, and we closed school. So school's closed now. The transportation is still an issue. Around Mankato, there were vacant lots near the railroad and they started to fill up with wood. So there's wood. They just can't get it to the people because the train can't get there. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so they have 11,000 cords waiting to be shipped out to these people that are freezing to death. So there's people down the road freezing to death. We have wood. We can't get it to you. Just seems sad and crazy. Um, A man wrote in the Springfield paper, a snow here in the West is simply immense. The engineering which is required to get around the immediate neighborhood as well as the other county requires considerable ingenuity. And for this reason, trade is almost completely suspended. For fuel, we are almost destitute. So it's starting to get colder again in February. And the merchants in Main Street are hauling snow off with um, teams of dog sleds. One business embarrassed, embraced the snowdrifts and hollowed one out and made it into a bar. <laughs> so, you know, if you can't, look, we're going to get people into buy booze somehow. The paper reported that the county was unhappy, but understanding at the slow progress, a train finally made it through and it had 13, another one that had 13 days worth of mail on board. 2,167 letters, 39 sacks of papers, just for the little 2,400 people new home. That's a lot of mail going. I mean, I guess that's how people communicated. That's how people communicated at the time, yeah. The people were starting to tear out hitching posts, parts of stables, the flagpole, anything that they could find to burn, they were tearing down and burning. People were continuing to cheat. A man came into town with a huge wagon load of hay and wanted to sell it. But on the way, it ran into a pothole because potholes happen in the snow, turned over, and underneath the hay was a bunch of rocks. (laughs) So people were laughing at him because he got stuck. The snow drifts were still a problem for the railroad because the snow was being blown around by the wind, even if it's not coming from the ground. There was a... Group of people, C.S. Hilly and Elam Winterhalter, and they were traveling from Chicago to Milwaukee. They got stuck in the last storm and were stuck on the train in the passenger car, snowbound for seven days. They reported the story to the New Orleans paper, saying the followers. There were 23 people stuck on the train, and the neighboring farmers and the station men would bring us food each day. The paper reported that everyone was in good humor, but I don't think I would be being stuck on a train for seven days. I don't think that I would like that very much. No, that would not be fun. No. By March, there are signs of spring. The temperatures are starting to warm up a little bit. Um, they were To so like the 30s? No. Warm up to 16 below. Oh. <laughs> so it's so much warmer. It's not 20 below. It's 16. Um, the St. Peter Tribune reported that a young man by the name of Ingbert Blake Bake, who lived in New Sweden, had passed away from exposure. He'd gone into town for a day of drinking and stumbled back home, got lost, and died. So moral of the story, don't drink in the snow. He was the only support for his crippled parents and his two sisters, one of whom was insane. Maybe he did it on purpose. I'm just saying. (laughs) Could be. Could be. So... More storms came on March 11th and 12th, and again on the 15th, 14th and the 15th. These storms piled up huge snowdrifts and cut the railroad service again. People are really starved for fuel. They're starting to burn hay, and 
saving up for the next cool snap because they're sure it's coming. The trains were nearly impossible at this point. People started to walk on the tracks now because the trains weren't coming through. And every now and again, a train would come through. And the person wouldn't be on the tracks anymore. Correct. The paper reported that Miss Belle Blake, who had been walking on the tracks, was on the way to Mankato and was found carried by a train that hit her quite a ways till she was thrown off to the side. A 64-year-old man was walking on the tracks near Mankato and came up and he clambered up the snowbank in the nick of time because... It's not just, you're not just walking on the tracks and there's like an open field. You're walking in the tracks that's in a ditch of snow. Yes, because I was just like thinking, I'm like, that's actually smart in one respect to walk on the tracks because you gonna know. It's going to be warmer down there. Well, and you know the direction you're going. Right, so that you can see where you're headed. And you don't, you're not going to like drift off. But on the other hand, if the train comes, where do you go? Yeah, so he stuck his hands and feet in the snow and climbed up just in time. Yeah. But luckily it wasn't ice. Because sometimes those outsides can freeze, thaw and freeze so much that it's like ice and you can't get through it. Um, There was another storm on March 19th and the train got through to Bird Island on March 14th that had not had a train since January 25th. Oh, wow. So this poor little island was crazy. The Northwest Railroad said that these winter storms had cost up to $300,000. And by March 30th, they're reporting that the wag- the snow had melted enough that wagons and s- are finally being able to used- be used instead of sleighs. And the local Native Americans had warned, hey, y'all, we're going to have problems this spring with flooding. Pay attention. Duh. Listen to us for once. Yeah, people didn't. So as of April 6th, the Minnesota River was covered in 36 inches of ice. And all of that has to melt. And so it did and caused all kinds of problems. The just flooding and flooding and flooding. Yeah, where did they think the water was going to go? Yeah, exactly. Um, The snow at this point had melted and re-frozen so many times. It was just ice. But the Midwest wasn't into spring yet. Another storm hit in April. And the Wasaka Herald reported that late in the evening, there were 75 carloads of goods waiting to be delivered to Sleepy Eye. Um, people in the nearby towns were still removing lumber from the railroad bridges to burn. So we're still tearing apart railroad bridges in April. But as things thawed, there was more problems. The mud was so thick that it made the roads completely impossible to drive on. So people still can't get through, even though it's thawing because of the mud and the flooding, as the Native Americans had warned about. And by April 20th, we had the first rain and the ice broke on the river in New Ulm by April 17th, which it froze in October. Yikes. Yes. The citizens celebrated with a grand Easter ball at the Union Hall. Why not? Because that's what they do. Um, Walnut Grove was finally cleared through. Walnut Grove, I think, was the town that the Ingalls lived in. Yes. Um, And it was finally cleared enough for the trains to get through by April 18th. On April 27th, my wedding anniversary, the paper reported that a great flood the Native Americans warned about was there and raging strongly. So they had a problem. They started hoarding fuel for future winters, but um, trains finally came through in May with food and supplies and the long winter ends and the Ingalls family enjoyed a belated Christmas with friends coming over to pause fiddling the Long Winter, the book, 
by Laura Ingalls Wilder ends with, as and as they sang, the fear and suffering of the long winter seemed to rise like a dark cloud and float away on the music. Spring had come and the sun was shining warm. The winds were soft and the green grass was growing. I'm hoping that's what we get through the pandemic and feel. Right? Although I think it's probably going to last a little bit longer than the long winter did, even though the long winter was from October to April. Yeah. I mean, I think we're right there. So. <laughs> we are. That is true. I hope that they figure out something soon, though. I'm tired. Even though we still have stuff. Yeah. I can't imagine not having stuff. No. I mean, there was the toilet paper scare, but we all managed to get through that. I was not worried about that at all. There are other things that you can use for toilet paper besides toilet paper. People were panicking, and I'm like, there's other options. Yeah. and well, Food so- is food. My husband really likes his paper towels, and so... Like my father-in-law. Yes. And so I was actually kind of more worried about, like, what are we going to do if there's no paper towels? Like, I have cloth napkins and stuff. I'm fine with that. Yes. Because you can wash them. Yes. But another member of my household (laughs) is, like, addicted to actual paper towels. It's so funny how we are stuck on these modern conveniences. So I'm I'm conserving all the paper towels by using... I would use the cloth napkins and stuff for yes. me. Yes. So that we wouldn't run out of the paper towels. <laughs> I don't know what I would do without paper towels because my sinuses are such that I have one next to my side all the time. Yes, you do. To use as a Kleenex. Yes. <laughs> but so that's the long winter. I, I mean, it's bad enough what we're doing. I can't even imagine... So what do you have for me for frosé? So it's less frosé and more rosé, but... Uh, oh, I like it. I, I'm going to tell... Should we fill? We'll pause. Okay. Okay, we're okay. back with some more frosé. Yeah. Not <laughs> I quite as, the bottle. It's not quite as frozen, which is good because my story really doesn't involve freezing. Ooh, but. okay. So we're just drinking rosé now with some ice. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you about the American Beauty murder. Ooh. So this is, uh, starts with me telling you about Kristen Rossum. Okay, so is this, like, just made me think Rosé, Rose, is this like the movie? Um, it relates to the movie. Ooh. But not, it, it doesn't really have anything to do with the movie except for that it does, so you'll find out later. Okay. Um, so in high school, Kristen Rossum started drinking beer and smoking <gasps> cigarettes. That does not sound like any high school student that I know ever. She also tried some marijuana, but she really didn't like it, so... Well, good for her. Instead of marijuana, she started doing meth, because... Oh! Yeah. That's so much better, she says incredibly sarcastically. Mm Mm-hmm. So, she graduates from high school, then in 1994, she moved to California. um, To picket her skin. And I didn't write... her teeth. I didn't write where she was living (laughs) before California, but anyway, she moved to California in 1994... She enrolled in University of Redlands. She lived in the dorms. And then while she was there, she relapsed on meth. So she had to leave college. Oh my goodness. Don't do meth. Don't do meth ever. We would have people come in when I worked at the court, come in and they'd literally be twitching and picking at their skin with their stringy hair and rotten out teeth saying, can I have a disillusion packet with children? Oh, it's awful. Ugh. Yeah, I see these people a lot, and it's just awful. So she leaves college. She ends up overcoming her addiction, and she starts a relationship with a man named Greg DeVillers. Okay, good for her. Yes, so she goes back to college. This time she goes to San Diego State University. Yay! Which is a 
CSU school. Yes. So, you Child know. number one had talked about going there. Yes. When we were in San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> of course. she's like, it's really nice here. <laughs> it's very nice. <laughs> so she, yeah, goes to San Diego State. She graduated with honors in 1998. Yay. And she apparently is into science because she graduated and began working as a toxicologist at the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office. Ooh. So this is even before the whole CSI thing really, really, like, became big. Uh-huh. So she got into toxicology and that kind of thing before it was, like, a fad. The thing to do. Yeah. So June 5th, 1999, she married Greg DeVillers. Uh-huh. And uh, by this time, they had been dating for five years. So about a year later, she started an extramarital affair with her boss, Dr. Michael Robertson. Ooh. And then sometime in in 2000, right at, like several months after the affair had started, Greg DeVillers found out about the affair. He also found out that Kristen had started using meth again. So he was not happy with either of those items. No, I would not be happy with either of those things either. And coincidentally, this is also right around the same time that Greg and Kristen started having marital issues. <laughs> Do you think the two are related? I wouldn't know. The affair, the drug abuse. Do you think that anything to do with her marriage going bad? So later, uh, later on this topic, Kristen said, about a year into our marriage, Greg became very, very clingy to me. I was trying to pull myself away and have some sort of independence. So on the weekend of November. So that I could smoke meth. I could do my meth and. <laughs> Sleep with my boss. Dr. Robertson. <laughs> Does Dr. Robinson know that she's doing meth? Yes. Okay. So um, on the weekend of November 5th, 2000, Kristen decided that she was going to leave Greg. So. Probably a good choice if she's. She sleeping didn't. with someone else. Yes. Well, and Greg threatened to expose the affair and her drug habit to her employers if she yeah. didn't quit her job. Ooh. So Dr. Robertson, who I just already told you, knew about the drug relapse. Right. He found out about this. I'm sure Kristen told him. Yeah. So he was like, oh, shoot. Like, that's not Is he not also good. married? Um, I don't know if he was married. Well, doesn't even matter. She's her, she is his underling and that's a no-no. Yes. And so, okay. So the next morning after Kristen decided to leave Greg, she is getting ready for work. Greg was still in bed and Kristen said he wasn't getting up like normal. He was really sluggish and his voice was slurred. It sounded like he had taken too much of something the night before. Or she put too much of something in his drink. Mm, perhaps. So she called her comp- She called the biotech company where Greg worked and said that he couldn't come in and that he was, you know, too ill. And then she went to work. So it's significant enough for her to notice that he's too ill to go to work and call in to his employer. Yet she's like, okay, have a good day, honey. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. I'll see you later. So then she comes home for lunch and she said that Greg told her that he had taken Oxycontin and clonazepam. You can tell I don't. Clonazepam. Clonazepam. That thing that people take. I've I've heard of it. It's a muscle relaxant. Yes. Where did I hear of it? Oh, we're watching a, a show called Vice Principles, which is full of comedians, but it's not a comedy. 
Weird. It's very bizarre. And clozapine? Sure. Anyway, the husband gave it to the wife and she went crazy, destroyed their bedroom, and pooped on a picture of their wedding. Ugh. <laughs> she was not happy in her marriage. So, anyway, Kristen, <laughs> that's what happened at lunchtime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she was not happy. <laughs> so, Kristen goes back to work, and then when she comes home, she finds Greg in bed. He's asleep and he's snoring. Oh, and okay. So she. I was thinking she, he's in bed dead. No, he. she said he was snoring. So then later that night, she comes in again to check on him. And she said that he, she noticed that he wasn't breathing this time. So she tried to give him CPR. Okay. Let me guess. He's in full rigor? No. Oh. No. Well, not according to her. So by this time, it's November 6th. And it's just after 9.15 p.m. And she called 911 and she reported that Greg had committed suicide. So... I tried and tried and tried to find this 911 call, hoping I could find it to play She it. just finds him dead in bed after being ill, and she claims it's suicide? Yes, I'll, and this is why she's claiming that. So, before, before Kristen had moved him from the bed to do CPR on him, she said she pulled the bedspread back, and his chest was covered in rose petals, red rose petals. And there was a picture of their wedding photo in bed with him. Oh, interesting. Yes. <laughs> so she said, he had given me a dozen beautiful long stem roses for my birthday. I think he was just making a statement that he knew our relationship was over. So I'm sorry. This is going to sound like a very sexist comment. That's a chick way to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dudes won't do that. Dudes don't do that. No. Dude's going to blow his brains out in front of you if he's that pissed. Yes. A chick is going to like be subtle and passive aggressive about it. Look, I'm covered in your rose petals and our wedding picture. Our wedding Fuck picture. <laughs> I know our relationship's over. Where a guy is going to be like, you don't love me? Watch me now. Bang. Yeah. So anyway, paramedics show up. They found Greg he was unresponsive on the bed and they did also see the rose petals. He was pronounced dead at the hospital and Kristen told the San Diego police that he had committed suicide. So despite this, Greg's family was adamant that he would not commit suicide. He wasn't suicidal. And at first the San Diego police were just like, okay, you know, they didn't really, they were pretty reluctant to do anything about it. But then the family just can't. They like kept pressuring the police. Like yeah. this is a homicide. You need to investigate it. So San Diego police finally start doing their investigation, and pretty soon they quickly discovered about Kristen's drug history and that she was currently again using meth. Crazy. Um, about a month after Greg's death, both Dr. Robertson and Kristen Kristen Rossum Kristen. <laughs> And they were both fired from the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office. Why? Because they're sleeping together and doing drugs? Well, That's Chris no reason to be fired. Yeah, Kristen was fired just based on her drug drug um, use. And Dr. Robertson was fired for the affair and for hiding the fact that Kristen was doing drugs. Yeah. Oh, he was freaking doing them too. Yeah, you know it. Um, so to avoid any possible conflict of interest greg's autopsy was done in los angeles which good move on the yes. san diego police department's part the these tests showed that de 
that Greg DeVillers had seven times the lethal, lethal dose of fentanyl in his system. So, fentanyl? Yes. So they weren't fooling around. Well, and fentanyl is like a thing now that's on the street, but at this time, it was not a street drug. Oh, interesting. So, so she got it from... Her the, lab. But would they have that? I mean, they're a medical examiner's office. They're not a hospital that's caused, treating pain. Well... I think that they probably would have like samples to test against. I don't know, but oh. especially things like that are odd. Like fentanyl wasn't yes. a normal thing back then. No, like, it was it was a painkiller in hospitals. It was like yeah. very regulated. Like now, my police department has drug tests that will test for fentanyl. Like we can get a sample of a drug that we you know confiscate or seize, mm. and we can say like this is fentanyl or that's not. That's but crazy. Even just a couple years ago, that wasn't a thing. No. But isn't it like super, super, super dangerous? Just the tiniest bit? Yes. The tiniest bit is super, super, super dangerous. Why fool around with that shit? So anyway, police were like, fentanyl, that's weird. And so they (laughs) kind of started investigating like how fentanyl worked and who would also have access to it. And they thought, hmm. Maybe Kristen, because she works in a lab. And so they knew that the lab where she worked, the San Diego, um, San Diego. Coroner. Yeah. Coroner's office. They did not routinely screen for fentanyl in their autopsies. And it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing, but they later, and they also later discovered that there was fentanyl missing from Kristen's lab, but she said she didn't take it, but I'm like, "Mm." Nah. I don't take it. I do meth, not... Meth. I don't do fentanyl. That's a sleepy drug. I like to be up. <laughs> so, on June 25th, 2001, Kristen was arrested and charged with murder. Um, her parents posted bail, $1.25 million for her release. Oh, mommy and daddy are still around. Mommy and daddy have some money. <laughs> Apparently. At the trial, the prosecution alleged that Kristen murdered her husband to keep him from telling her work about her affair with her boss and her drug use, which checks out because that's why they got fired. Right. And apparently the meth she was using was found to have been stolen from the drug lab as well. So that's not good. I'm making the shocked face. Yeah. So now that I'm thinking about it, I guess like drug labs that do drug screenings are going to have drugs around because... I know, like, at our police department, when we send drugs to a lab for screening, Mm -hmm. they keep those drugs until they're completely done with the screening. Uh So there's, they have drugs sitting around waiting for these, like, samples to be. That are prop, I mean, I'm sure that they're kept very secure because it is evidence, but. But somebody. Reasonably easy to make off with it. Especially if you were a person in charged with te- testing these samples, right. you would have access to these You're samples. You're not going to have to sign out for it because it's signed to you. Yeah. Interesting. So maybe that's how she got the fentanyl? I don't know. Huh. But, um, okay, so the Does defense... Does fentanyl have use use? Yes. Like big time pain, like cancer pain and whatnot, Yes, like right? cancer pain. So the defense argued that Greg was suicidal and that he had poisoned himself. Of but he did. the argument back is if Greg had poisoned himself with fentanyl, how come there's no evidence of it? If he had injected it, which is the most common way to use it, uh-huh. then there would have been a syringe. 
Right. Found- and he would not have had time if it was, what, five or 12? Like seven times, I think. Yeah. To or five times, I don't know. Then clean up and put the rose petals in the picture on the bed and cover himself up with covers. And Yeah, and completely get rid of a syringe that's nowhere to be found. Yes. So, or if he had used patches, which is the next most popular way to use fentanyl, there would have been patches on his skin or... Evidence of patches on his skin. And he'd been ill for how many days? Like a day. Only like a day. Yeah. So in response, um, oh, the defense also argued that Greg probably drank the fentanyl from a glass that was found at the bedside table and was never tested. Oh, I was going to say, then test the glass. Yeah. But well, and then the response was by the prosecution, they said, well, if Greg had consume the fentanyl orally then why was there a needle mark on his body so apparently or there was did they you could also look in his stomach because it would not have had time to digest if it was that many times a yeah, lethal dose that too but uh, yeah apparently there was a needle mark left on his body that there was no syringe for you know it didn't it, right, no, it because, wasn't checking out because she took it with her because she took it with her so the 911 tape was played at the trial and it did indicate that she had administered CPR, so she wasn't apparently wasn't lying about that. And like that's what I said, I was trying to find that CPR or the 911 tape, but oh. I could not find it. Oh, see, I figured that she killed him way, way the day before, and so by the time she reported him dead, he'd been dead for hours no, hours it was hours. fresh like that because the fentanyl like happens like super quick. So he really was ill. By a mixture of whatever he took just to relax or Yeah, whatever. or she, like, dosed him with something else. I don't know. And then to make him ill? Yeah. But, you know, he could have done it himself. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, the prosecutors also had evidence that the rose petals that were found in Greg's bed had been purchased by Kristen. They used her um, grocery store charge card to find that she had... Um, we're being tracked everywhere. Even in 2000, we yeah. were being tracked. And the prosecutors claimed that the rose petals were copied from a scene in the 1999 film, American Beauty. Yes. Because it's the chick way to die. Yep. So then finally, October or November 12th, 2002, Kristen was found guilty of first degree murder. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Was he naked with his hair strewn about the pillow? I can only imagine. (laughs) They didn't say that, though. Um, Dr. Robertson moved back to his home in Brisbane, Australia, after he was fired. And unbeknownst to him, the prosecution secretly filed a criminal complaint against him for being a co-conspirator and for obstructing justice. So if the Australian government ever decides to extradite Dr. Robertson back to the U.S., he could face up to three years in prison, or if he ever returns to the U.S. voluntarily... Uh But he hasn't, and Dr. Robertson began a forensic consulting service in Brisbane in 2014, and so that's what he's doing now. So, um, yeah, I got most of the story from Wikipedia and from a bunch of articles in Murderpedia. Oh, interesting, Murderpedia. How many years is she in prison for? Um, Life, without the possibility of parole. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. I can picture her. She's blonde. She's definitely blonde. Yeah interesting very cool i like that i did frozen and you did rosé Froze. <laughs> well I, I as i was telling you off recording i had started on this other story and uh-huh. then um i wasn't 
smart enough to remember to keep my sources like I normally like I'll copy and paste the tabs that yes. I'm using and I didn't do that and then I completely lost it and it was just too hard to go back and so I found this other one so. I'm curious to find out what your other story was well I can tell you a little bit so basically it was about the um let's see so the title is named Sherelle Dell, and I think it was the, I think it was her husband, that she had poisoned her husband uh-huh. with wine. Let's see. Ooh. I'm just looking at my notes right now that, let's see. There was a sudden death. The dead man was Scott Dell. He was on the floor of his fa- farmhouse. There was a bottle of wine sitting on the table along with a wine glass. Um, let's see. That reminds me of our first one, our very first story. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, Sherelle. Something about, I think she maybe poisoned him, but I don't remember exactly the scenario. Very cool. Well, we thought of Frosé way back in the summer when it was, you know, Frosé drinking time. Now it's Frosé outside time. (laughs) But it was still refreshing and I enjoyed it. I will know now to only freeze the wine for a couple of hours. Yes. Now the... Although I do have to say this wine... Well, that's the opposite. I was. This is our highest alcohol, or the that winery's highest alcohol wine. And yet it still froze solid in my, in my stupid refrigerator. Interesting. Yeah. I was thinking the opposite for a minute. Yeah, if it was a higher sugar content, you could see it freezing. You could see it freezing. No, this is our highest alcohol volume. What is it? As always, you can contact us on Facebook at Crime and Time OTR. On Instagram, we are Crime and Time OTR. On Twitter, we're at Crime and Time OTR. And our email is Crime and Time OTR at gmail.com. Email is where you'll want to where you will want to send us cocktail suggestions, things Topics. you want to learn about. Yeah. yeah. Or just say hi. Or just say hi. And we also have a new Patreon page. Yay. If you want to buy us a drink. Buy us a drink. So that is patreon.com slash crime and time otr and we're going to be offering some perks for our patrons absolutely i'm excited see you there or the highest alcohol volume it is 12.3 oh wow which is high for wine no wonder it's so good i know and we just have a little bit so we just need to kill this i mean i'm not a wine expert not a wine expert but i'm gonna kill this glass of wine oh for sure because we are most definitely drunks thank you for listening